You guys can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Today we finished the book. We've been in Mark together now for, oh, I don't know how many months. I know it was September when we started. That seemed like a long time ago. Maybe five or six months. I don't know. And now we can bring it to a close. Bring it to a close. A few years back, the first time I ever got to go to the Frist uh, Museum of Art downtown, they were having an exhibit on Egyptian culture, ancient Egypt. And I thought, you know, I knew about as much about Egypt as anybody else. I mean, I had watched the Ten Commandments growing up. You know, I'd seen Pharaoh and Yule Brenner. I had seen, I had, you know, I'd read the kinds of things you read in college about those ancient regimes and the kinds of civilizations that were, were built up there that, and the way that it impacted other civilizations later. What I didn't realize until going to that exhibit, what fascinated me about it, was how much that culture was organized around the problem of life after death. The Egyptian culture, especially its most vibrant parts, the things that we really look back and marvel at about ancient Egypt, things like its architecture and the pyramids, some of its most beautiful art, its most incredible literature, all of it is organized around the problem of death and and the attempt to outlive it. That's why they mummified people, right? That was one of the contributions of the Egyptian society to the world. One of their their rare and distinctive attributes is that they had these elaborate rituals for trying to preserve bodies. They had these sacred texts that described the passage of that soul and body through the different stages to wherever it was going to end up. The pyramids, of course, are really just humongous tombstones that point to the significance of that life and that try to prepare that life for its passage into whatever comes next. Egyptians are one of the first cultures to take up this question of death and the possibility of life after it. They would certainly not be the last. A lot of us grew up reading about the myths, myths that were in cultures on opposite sides of the world from each other about the possibility of a fountain where if you could dip in it, you could, you could stave off aging, the aging process, a fountain of youth, which ultimately means a fountain of life, a way of, of avoiding death. It turns up in ancient cultures of the East and ancient cultures in South America. And ultimately that hope drove a lot of the, the, the exploration in the New World. You know, maybe in, in high school you read about the fact that Florida gets discovered by a guy who is looking for the fountain of life and thinks that he's found it in what's St. Augustine now. And ultimately it hasn't gone, that, that fascination with the question of life after death hasn't gone anywhere. Two of the, of the New York Times bestsellers for nonfiction right now on the current bestseller list are memoirs of alleged experiences after death. People who went through some sort of trauma and were declared dead for a certain amount of time and then came back with stories of what they encountered on the other side. Two of them on the bestseller list right now as we speak. Ultimately, this is a fixation that makes sense. Because even today, even in modern cultures, with all of our scientific advancements, even with all we've done to get rid of the old myths about the way the world works, we still haven't figured out a solution to the problem of death. We all live under this fundamental human problem hanging over us like a cloud that we can't escape so that we're all essentially stuck with a terminal disease. Whether you find out tomorrow that you've got six months to live or whether you live for another 60 years... Ultimately, in the grand scope of history, it's a blip on the radar and doesn't make a whole lot of difference. you all got a terminal disease. And you can call me morbid, and maybe that's a little bit true. 
but I see it as realistic. The younger you are when you appreciate your mortality and look at life in light of your mortality, the better for you. And Christianity is fundamentally a religion organized around the problem of death and the possibility of hope beyond death. It begins with an explanation of where death came from, a story of sin and rebellion that is punished with death as a, as a sort of curse. It builds on the promise of life, of triumph over death. And in this crucial way, it's not like any of the other previous accounts. It's nothing like the Egyptian attempts to explain life after death. In those accounts, the, the, the life after death was always something that was, that was unknown, unexperienced, something hoped for, something speculated about, but something that had to very much to do with things unseen, things mythical. The Christian claim is that the solution to death is already underway and that it began with an event that actually happened in history, an event that was seen by eyewitnesses, by many of them who lived, who went on to live for decades after the, after the fact. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus died, that He really did die, but He came back to life. And He did that so He could offer the same life to those who trust Him. That's the fundamental claim of Christianity, and it's the claim that Mark chooses to end his story on. What I want to do this morning is look at the story that Mark tells and then ask of that story two big questions. On these two questions hangs your life, your future. Is it true? Is what Mark claims happened true? And if it is true, so what? What are the implications? Let's begin by reading the story together. Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's Word as we read from Mark? We're going to read from Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40, and then we're going to read all the way through chapter 16, verse 8. This is the Word of the Lord. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, 
Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There will you see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. You can be seated. Mark concludes the story with an earth-shattering claim. It's a claim that launches the life of the church and continues to motivate it even to today. Jesus was really dead, and now he's alive. This part of the story, the final chapter, opens up in a darkness that's both literal and figurative. It's literal in the sense that in the middle of the day, when the sun would normally be at its most powerful, somehow, mysteriously, darkness covered the face of the earth. The women are watching Jesus. We're told this last phase of the story through the perspective of a group of women. It's, a, it's another classic twist of irony that Mark loves to use so much. These women, small, a small band, weak, marginalized, undervalued by the world, have the courage to stick by Jesus when his band of men have fled him at the first sign of trouble. These women have seen firsthand that he'd offered them an affirmation and a hope that wasn't available to them in any other part of society. And now they'd watched him die. Most of us here can sympathize with what goes down in this story. Most of us have lost someone close. What we're really reading here is the story of a funeral of all of those things that we do to try to put a period to the end of someone's life, to emphasize the finality of death, the fact that that now we've got to cope with a world that will always look different because they're not there. That's what these women are trying to grapple with. That's, I think, the point of all of Mark's details. What he's trying to communicate here with all these different references to the fact that Jesus really did die, the fact that they have to double-check it and the fact that, that Joseph goes through all of these steps to, to prepare him for burial is, is to make sure you know he was really dead. The reason that matters is that one of the best ways that some people try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus is that he was just sort of unconscious, that, that he was so drained physically and emotionally by the, by the trauma that he had been through that he just sort of swooned and, and looked like he was out, maybe in a temporary coma, but that his body came back to life when he was given time to rest. It's almost like Mark knows people were going to try to explain it away like that. And so he drops in all these references to the fact that it was double-checked, that they were surprised that he would have been dead already. And so they make sure, and then they wrap him all up and do all of these burial preparations just to make sure that, that his body is, is protected. They lay him in a tomb that would have been pretty typical for the time, carved into a little cave in the side of a hill, probably. It would have been a tomb that was, may have been home to... Uh, may have been, Constructed to be home to many other bodies. We've been a little shelf carved into the rock that the body would be laid on until it had decomposed enough for the bones to be collected and put into a little box. That's the, that's the story that, that Mark is telling here. The funeral preparations that they would go through. Stone rolling over the, gray, the entrance to the tomb is probably not unlike what we experience when the casket gets closed or when it's lowered into the ground. There's something gut-wrenching something so final about that act. And that's what the women saw. Mark tells us they were looking on. They saw where he was laid. 
As soon as the Sabbath is over, they're coming back to care for the body. They can't do it right away. The Sabbath won't, won't allow, the Sabbath regulations won't allow that kind of work to go down on the Sabbath. So they wait until morning, the day after. As soon as the shops are open, they go to collect their supplies and they're, they're going back to care for the body. We can sympathize with them here too, can't we? It's almost like we feel like, in, during funeral preparations, we feel like mysteriously somehow we can still help the person who's died. We think if we can just arrange it exactly as they would have wanted, if we can put the right things into the coffin with them or choose the right songs for the, for the service, that somehow we'll still be helping them. I, th- I get that from these women. Taking the spices, they're going to try to do everything they can to, to, to cover this body, to protect it from the smells. But just like we are when we're, when we're crippled by grief, at the same time that we're trying to handle all these kinds of details, they, they're scrambling. They're wandering back to the tomb where they've got to perform this work and they don't even know how they're going to get in because there's this humongous rock that's been rolled over the the front of the tomb and they don't have the power, they don't have the strength in themselves to get enough leverage to to move the stone away and and they realize it as they're on their way back. What what are we going to do? How are we going to get in? Their sadness is the same sadness we experience. But there's another layer too, one that we can barely imagine. They had experienced not just the death of a loved one, but the death of hope. They had experienced the death of hope. They saw in Jesus the promised deliverer, the one that the prophets had talked about, the one who was coming, yeah, to to relieve them from their oppressors, but maybe even to relieve them from death itself. The earliest accounts that they had read since since they could remember told, yes, of the fall, yes, of God cursing the world with the problem of death, but also of this one, this seed of the woman, Genesis 3 talks about, who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent, who would crush, in other words, the power of all evil and rid the world of the cycle of death that had held it in its grip since sin entered the world. That's what they were looking for. The stories of the Old Testament record one potential redeemer after another who always ended his life in death. And judges, they got one after the other. Judge who was raised up, who was a redemptive figure, but then who died. Even earlier than that, in Genesis, maybe Abraham would be this person. Maybe it would be Jacob. Maybe it would be Joseph. Each one of them died. Then the story of David comes along. Here's this king. Of, if anyone was going to crush the power of evil and end death once and for all, maybe it would be David. And he receives these amazing promises from, from God about a, a throne that would never end. Maybe it would be him, or at the very least, it would be his son, Solomon. Both of them die. They come and go. And now Jesus, perhaps a greater source of hope than any they had ever seen. He'd done things that none other prophet had ever done. If anyone was going to be able to do it, it would be him. And they've just watched him die. But the story doesn't end there. Mark doesn't elaborate. That's not been his way all along. He tells you what happened, and that's about it. But the details here speak for themselves. The women arrive at the tomb to find it not just open, but empty. They're told again what they'd forgotten Jesus had predicted by this mysterious figure dressed in white, probably a reference to him being some sort of angel, some sort of superhuman figure. He tells them what Jesus had already predicted would happen, that he's risen and that he's going ahead to meet you. He sends them to the same disciples who had abandoned Jesus. He even mentions Peter specifically. Make sure you tell Peter Jesus is coming back to you because in spite of the fact that he had denied him three times, Jesus was there for him 
He's offering him grace and redemption. Now, the implication of these details, even though Mark doesn't tease it out, it's the implica- this implication is the centerpiece of Christian hope. The implication is that Jesus overcame death. We're going to spend more time in a few weeks on Easter Sunday considering the meaning of His resurrection, why it's so valuable. For now, all we need to note is that Mark goes out of his way to make sure we know Jesus was really dead and now He's not. It's an earth-shattering claim that Mark just leaves us with, hanging there to test it and to tease out the implications of it. If it's true, it's the single most incredible event in human history. But is it true? Did Jesus really die and then come back from the grave? Is it true in the same sense that we consider it true that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated or that Pearl Harbor got bombed or that the King's Speech won the Oscar for Best Picture? These sort of taken-for-granted facts that we would never dispute. Is, is, Is this claim that Jesus rose from the dead true in that same sense? And if so, what... What's the point? What are the implications? Those are two questions I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on. Is it true? And if so, why does it matter so much? Is it true? How could we know if Mark's claim is reliable? Let me, let me begin by admitting that there is no disputing the fact that this claim is absurd, viewed in light of our normal human experience. You should think of this as a radical and absurd claim. If you're not blown back by it, I don't think you really understand it. I don't think you're connecting with how dramatic and radical this is. If it does seem ludicrous to you, if it seems too hard for you to swallow, let me give you some things to think about, and then I'd love to continue the conversation with you later. There's no way in the ten minutes I'm going to give to this question, I'm going to answer it in a way that satisfies you. But let me give you some things that may get your wheels turning may help you to consider this as a historical question in a way that you haven't given it serious thought before. And then I invite you, we'll continue the conversation later. This is not the kind of claim that you can test in a lab. You sciences people out there, science students, grad students, fellows, what have you, I'm not going to be able to give you what, the kind of proof that you're normally used to in your field. This calls for a different kind of proof. This is a moment for the historians among us. There's a different kind of, there's a different way of testing this kind of claim. And on the, using these tests, I think the, the resurrection of Jesus comes out as well-supported as most anything we could know about the ancient period. Let me give you just a few examples of evidence that this claim that Mark gives us is reliable. The first has to do with the character of the accounts themselves, the character of the resurrection accounts. This is the biggest one. I think this is the most important piece to the puzzle. Character of the resurrection accounts. Most everything that we know about history... We know because somebody told us. Because someone wrote it down, wrote down what they saw or what they experienced, or because somebody interviewed a witness, some sort of testimony to the thing that happened. That's how we know facts from history. Now, the historian's job is to try to figure out what happened, to try to figure out the difference between testimony that you can trust and testimony that you can't trust. And historians pose tests to claims that people are making in the past to see whether or not we can, we can rely on those. I think that Mark's claim, the New Testament's claim that Jesus is still alive, has 
as much, if not more, validity to it on those tests than anything we know about ancient history. Let me give you some examples of why that's true. Things about the character of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament that, that point us towards the fact that it's true. The first, and this may sound obvious, but I think it's a really important thing to know. The first is that they were actually written as histories and not as fables. Some people have gotten out from under even considering the resurrection of Jesus as possible because they just assume that the New Testament documents that talk about Jesus being alive are not really that different from like Homer's Odyssey where you got all this weird stuff going on, all of these interactions between the gods and, the, and those who are fighting in these battles for Troy. They, they assume that, that those fables, the kinds of things that Homer was writing, are what the, the New Testament writers were providing. And so they don't even take it seriously that, you, that, that Mark's claim might be true. In, any more than we take it seriously that George Washington cutting down the cherry tree is true. We know that that's a fable that was created to build up the image of a hero and to encourage people to follow in that hero's footsteps. There are plenty of reasons not to think that's what Mark and the other New Testament writers were actually doing. They actually go out of their way to say that that's not what they're trying to do. Luke is the best example of this. If you look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke talks about the fact that he's done interviews. He's collected other accounts that have been written and compared them. He's done all of his research and put it all together and tried to and trying to write it in a way that's faithful to what actually happened. He's doing the work of a historian trying to convince you that you can trust in the claims that he's making. They're not trying to write fables. This is not some Iliad or Odyssey. This is their attempt to try describe something that's new. That's real. That's actually happened. Now, if we, if we can see that they were trying to tell us something that's true, the next question we've got to ask about the character of these accounts is, is there any, anything about them that should lead us to believe they are actually true, that they weren't telling us a lie? The accounts themselves, I think one of the most important, most powerful pieces of evidence in favor of these accounts as truthful, is that they include details that you wouldn't include if you were trying to convince as many people as possible to believe your lie. They include details that you wouldn't just make up out of thin air if you were trying to convince a bunch of people to believe your lie. The best example of this is that they include women. Across the, across the, the board, the gospel accounts have women as the first eyewitnesses to whom Jesus chose to reveal himself and, and to whom Jesus or angels gave the responsibility of reporting to everyone else. Now here's why that matters so much. This was not 21st century America. This was not post-1960s and 70s America. This was a time when the testimony of women was not even admissible in court. They couldn't testify as witnesses because they were, they were considered unreliable. There's no way, if you were going to try to write an account that was to convince as many people as possible, that you would start with eyewitness testimony from a group of women. Mark does, so do the other Gospels. They start there because that's what happened. And they did not consider it their responsibility to tweak the facts that, that they knew to have occurred. The accounts include details you wouldn't include if you're trying to convince as many people as possible. Final example on, on the character of these accounts, things about the way that they're written that lead, should lead us to believe that they're true and reliable. And this, to me, is the best example, even better than, than, than what we've just discussed. These accounts were written within 20 years after the events occurred. Schol New Testament scholars majority of them agree that the earliest accounts of the resurrection of Christ 
were written very early, even within 15 to 20 years of the events themselves. Here's why that matters so much. They wrote and claimed, people like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, claimed that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses still alive who you could go and interview. They invited you. They listed their names in their letters and said, this guy saw him. Go talk to him. He's still alive. They were inviting people to do some investigation. They're claiming that so many people, hundreds of people, saw him that that claim alone, the claim that 500 people claimed to have seen him, could have been disconfirmed 15 years later. If you were living in this small, confined area and you had never met one of these people who were supposed to have seen Jesus, you could say, I haven't met him. You're saying 500 people? Saw him? Where are they? The events, as they were described, could be confirmed or disputed by those who were still around. The reason this matters so much is, is I think, obvious from things we see happen today, like the, the social network, right? It's one of the, the hottest movies of last year, the movie about Facebook. It was also, it was really cool, but it was also really controversial. And the reason it was controversial is that they were describing a series of events They were explaining the rise of Facebook and how all the things happened behind the scenes. But they were explaining it while those who also lived through those events are still alive and around to say, that's not how it happened. I remember it, and that's not what went down. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. They could confirm or dispute the accounts because it happened so soon. Another example, I think an even better example, is the reason that a a movie about the Iraq War, like The Hurt Locker, is going to be more controversial than a movie about the Revolutionary War, like The Patriot, Because there's no vets still alive that fought in the Revolutionary War. You might get a few historians who who enjoy fighting over these things, what did and didn't happen, but there's no people still living who went through the events and could come and, and contest them. These events, these accounts of the events, happen so close together that it speaks to the fact that these people were confident that they had actually seen the things they claim to see. The summary here on, on, on the character of the resurrection accounts, the bottom line is that there's better testimony to Jesus' resurrection. There's more of it, and it has better character to it than, than there is for other events of ancient history that we take for granted. The kinds of stuff you read in a world civ class, things about the, the wars of the Roman Empire or, or, or the, the, the wars in Greece, some of these classic histories like Herodotus. We have less evidence for those things as reliable than we do for the accounts of Jesus. If you want to believe anything about ancient history, then you've got to consider why you shouldn't believe this. If you want to have confidence about anything in ancient history and not have confidence about Jesus' resurrection, then you've got problems. So the character of the resurrection accounts is a strong reason to believe that Mark's claim is reliable. The second, the last thing I'll mention, a second reason to believe Mark's claim is reliable is that the explosive growth of the church doesn't make sense if the resurrection didn't happen like Mark says it did. The explosive growth of the church in the ancient world doesn't make sense if the resurrection didn't happen the way Mark said it did. The growth of the church came so quickly, it came across such a great distance It came among the least powerful elements of society. Not the rulers imposing their will from above or through military power, but from the poor, from women, from the marginalized, from slaves. And it grew in spite of the best attempts of one of the strongest totalitarian states 
in human history to root it out. The Roman Empire did what it could to literally burn Christianity out of the empire. And it couldn't do it. Against all of these odds, the, the church grew. And that makes sense best in light of some central and powerful event. Some sort of big bang that explodes it to the ends of the earth. I think the resurrection is the best explanation. And this becomes more true the deeper you look into the sources of the claim, the more you dig towards the event. Think about it. How could hundreds and even thousands of Jews, specifically, how could hundreds and even thousands of Jews, the people who identified them themselves over against other people as worshipers of only one God, in the context of many gods, they worshipped only one, how could these people begin worshiping Jesus as divine practically overnight? Like that, they're convinced he's divine and they worship him. Israel is the least likely location for the conviction that Jesus is alive to explode in the way that it did. Unless those people who believed in only one God saw something in Jesus that made them identify him with that God. Unless they'd seen him alive after they knew he was dead. Consider the other leaders of the church. Consider the apostles, Jesus' disciples, the same guys who had scattered to the wind at the first sign of trouble. Later on, they are dying. Almost all of them die for the claim that Jesus is alive. The same guys who were too afraid to stand beside him when, they di when he died were willing to die for him. And would they have been willing to die for him if they knew that it wasn't true? If anybody fabricated the story of Jesus being alive again, it was these guys. Would they have died for a lie that they made up? That they were in a position to, to know for sure wasn't true? I don't think they would. The same guys who scattered to the wind stood firm before the, most, one of the most powerful states in history and they gave up their lives because they knew that Jesus really was alive. The birth of Christianity, the explosion of the church, that's undeniable. That happened. You've got to explain it somehow. And it's really hard to explain unless Jesus really is alive. I think there are plenty of good reasons to believe that the claim Mark is making here is actually true. I realize that in this amount of time, there's no way to convince you if that's something that's, that's a hang-up for you. What I would encourage you to do is to think about it new, to come back to it, to actually take that claim seriously and to realize it may have more support than what you thought before. What I want to do for the rest of our time is to dig down deeper on what, it, what happens if it is true. If Jesus really is alive... If he was dead, just like we die, and came back to life so that he's alive now bodily, just like we're alive, so what? First implication, I think, is that it means he's Lord, and it means we have to submit to him. It means, in other words, that if you're hung up on some part of Christianity that makes it hard for you to swallow, if there's something about what Jesus taught or his followers taught that seems to rub you the wrong way, let me tell you that you're in good company, that in every era since the church was born, there had been something about that culture in which it lived that, that didn't square just right with something that Christianity teaches. But let me say that if Jesus is alive, if he really rose from the dead, the implication of that is that he gets to tell us what is and what isn't. If he's alive, who are we to dispute him even when he tells us something is true that doesn't seem possible or plausible to us? If he's alive, we submit to him. If he isn't alive, 
What, what do we care what he said anyway? So focus in on the resurrection. If you're struggling with to swallow Christianity, focus in on the resurrection. Come to grips with this claim and with the reasons to believe that it's true. And let that control how you look at the rest of Christianity. Second implication, if it's true, if Jesus is really alive, then that's a fact that's got to shape our lives to the core. It has to shape our lives to the core. Here's what I mean. It's clearly an absurd thought that someone rose from the dead. And we shouldn't let the familiarity that many of us have with this claim dampen how absurd it really is. But that intellectual absurdity, the fact that it sounds so stupid that that could have actually happened, I don't think that's really what Paul gets at when he talks about the foolishness of Christianity. I don't think that it's limited to the fact that we have to believe some things that seem strange and unbelievable to other people who don't share our beliefs. I think his foolishness, what makes us fools if we follow Jesus, is much deeper than that for Paul. What makes Paul a fool, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 15, is that if Jesus isn't alive, he staked his whole life. He staked the shape of his life, what he spends his time doing, what his goals are around the belief that Jesus lives. And he's, he's going to be found to have shaped his life around something that's empty. That's what makes him foolish. If Jesus isn't alive, Paul's decisions are absolutely foolish because his life is based on something that's false. So let me ask you, are you really living as if Jesus is alive? Have you staked anything to that claim, to that belief? Is, is, is that belief in your mind something more like your belief that in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue? You know, if, something, if somebody came up with some sort of study that realized it was actually 1493, you would have been wrong in your commitment, but it wouldn't really change anything in your life, right? Paul is calling for a, for a belief in the claim that Jesus is alive that shapes everything in your life so that if it should turn out that Jesus isn't alive, then we, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, are of all people the most to be pitied. So my question to you is, would your neighbors, who aren't believers, look at you and think not just that your belief is silly, not just that you're naive, but that you're living foolishly, that maybe you're even throwing your life away? If Jesus should turn out not to be alive, would the only thing about you that changes be your, your ability to sleep well at night? The only thing that changes be the fact that you, you're, you're a little more afraid of what might happen to you after death? Or would you look at your life and think that you had wasted it? If the latter is not true for you, I wonder if you've really understood the resurrection of Jesus. If it's true, it shapes your life to the core. Third implication. If Jesus really is alive, then that means that good and beauty and joy are permanent while sorrow and pain and suffering are fleeting. If Jesus is alive, and if He's alive for us in a way that we can attach to Him and live through Him, then that means that good and beauty and joy are permanent while sorrow and pain and suffering are fleeting. Everybody, all, all people who really think about the nature of the world, recognize that it's a mixed bag, that there is good in it and there is sorrow in it. 
there's sex in the context of a covenant relationship. And then there's rape or pedophilia. There's the incredible beauty of a natural landscape like the Pacific coastline. And then there's tsunamis that devastate entire cultures. There's humans who fashion amazing works of creativity and ingenuity like a Rembrandt painting or like the iPad. And those same hands fashion nuclear bombs and gas chambers. More personally, there's relationships of fulfillment and joy and there are relationships that are broken and heart-wrenching. And sometimes the same relationship can have both. And in the last year alone, I've witnessed the birth of my son, token of fullness and joy and beauty to life, and I've witnessed one of my closest friends lose his father way too early. What we've got to do is recognize that there are both of these aspects in human experience. There is joy and there is pain. You're naive if you deny that there's any pain, You're cynical if you deny that there's any joy or goodness. What we have to explain is which part of that experience is ultimate. What we have to explain is which is permanent and natural and which is fleeting and doesn't belong. If death is ultimate, if all we are is pieces of material that are here for a moment and then gone, then beauty and joy and love and goodness and and what you experience when when your child smiles at you, that's just a mirage like, like some sort of illusion in the desert that promises the, 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 the fulfillment of a drink of water and then disappears when you get there. It's ultimately meaningless and it won't survive. But if Jesus is alive, and if as Christians claim Jesus is alive for us just like he died for us, then suffering and pain and sorrow, they, they don't go away. We won't pretend that they're not real. And many of you sitting out there today know how real they are. But it means that they don't win. They're not forever. They're not inevitable. And they don't belong. What they're evidence of is not something about the nature of the world. They're evidence of an insurgency that's still ongoing, but that has days that are numbered. I think many of us have experienced depression before. What depression, sort of the root of it, is the conviction that things that you're experiencing now aren't going to change. That you're stuck there, wherever you are. And the resurrection is a promise that that's not true. The resurrection is a promise that good wins, that Jesus is alive and so can you live forever. It's a promise that what was true for Job is even more visibly true for us on this side of Christ's resurrection. As Job watched his life melt away, all the things that he loved, his family, all of his wealth, all of his possessions, his land, his homes, all destroyed and stripped away, Job was able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. If Jesus is alive, we can have the conviction, even more clearly and vividly than Job had, that he's going to stand and us with him while all else, while all pain, all suffering falls away. That's what we can bank on if Jesus is alive. Finally, If Jesus is alive, we can enjoy the rest that comes from knowing that we're accepted by God fully because death couldn't hold him down. If Jesus was still dead, we would be left to wonder whether the penalty that death death represents is still hovering over our heads. Because Jesus is alive, we know that that penalty has been fully satisfied, so much so that death itself is left empty 
that it has no power. It's literally spent. It's used up. It's exhausted, and therefore it can't hold him anymore. And because he's alive, no matter how sinful we are, no matter how much we deserve to die, we know that death doesn't have any power over us either. Because we are attached. We are one, buried in baptism and risen to new life in Christ with one who could not be kept in the grave. That's the beauty of the resurrection. That's our hope if Jesus is really alive. Will you pray with me? Lord, we want so badly for this to be true. We long for the peace that comes from the conviction that Jesus is more powerful than even the most powerful of human problems. We know that even though there's good reason to believe it's true, ultimately our conviction, our faith in that truth must come from you. We know that because our faith is weak, because we get tossed by the waves, because when our circumstances shift, so do so does our confidence in you. And so what we ask for is a faith that transcends the circumstances we see around us, that's deeper, that's more grounded and rooted, a faith that is firmly tied to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Would you help us to believe it? Would you give faith to hearts this morning? even to those sitting right here in this room right now, would you please help us to believe? We thank you for Jesus. And we pray to you in his name. Amen.